0: Hello and welcome to Sunday Night Conversations brought to you by D1Baseball.com. I am your host, Michael Patrick Rooney. I want to say a quick thank you, a special thank you, to our presenting sponsors, Netting Pros. Netting Pros specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting and padding for college baseball programs all around the country. Next time your field or facility needs something new, whether that be netting, wall padding, L-screens, or ball carts, make sure you check out our friends at Netting Pros. Netting Pros. We will see those guys in Nashville at the convention. Can't wait. I uh, just want to say thanks again to those those folks. Two years ago, when we did fourth coach conversations, you know, I guess I should say last fall, um, they stepped forward, and and you know, I, I think any business when they advertise or when they sponsor something, there's a there's a business motive. But I really believe this with netting pros, these are people that love our sport, and it was you know certainly I hope that everyone uh supports them and and goes to those guys with with whatever they need because you're getting the best of the best and they're incredible people but i honestly almost feel like they sponsor the show because they just love the sport and they want to support assistant coaches so anyway we're, we're so appreciative of the guys at netting pros can't wait to see them in nashville uh and and this being the last sunday night conversation of 2022 want to say a, a special thank you to those guys so uh gentlemen good to see you happy sunday night um uh, excited that this is the last one this is going to be a, our second catching conversation um, that's all of your guys specialty and you know again for the uninitiated this is version 2.0 of the fourth coach conversations that we did last year where we we just want to have conversations with the the, the rising assistant coaches across America uh, we're doing it more topic driven this year we're kind of picking up different parts of the game And and like I said this will be our second conversation around catching so Matthew, I'm, I'm gonna we're going to go around the horn. You're going to start us out. I want your name, where you're from, where you played, where you've coached. Kind of just take us through your resume, if you will. Matt, Coach Beard, go ahead. Sure. My name is Matthew Beard. I actually grew up uh, just
1: an hour and a half east of here in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, I played baseball at Coastal Carolina. Uh, after that, I had a chance to play pro ball just for about a year for the Orioles. And then in terms of coaching, I've coached a year of travel ball, now about a year and a half as a graduate assistant here
0: at Tennessee. All right, Matthew, so you were were, uh, the primary catcher on the 2016 Coastal Carolina National Championship team, which is still one of the most awesome things that's happened in college baseball in 50 years. Um, So first, I got several follow-up questions for each of you. but So let's start, Matthew, with this. Um, On a scale of 1 to 10, how big is your national championship ring, and where is the most unique place you've worn it? Like, please say laundromat, movie theater, where where where's the most interesting place you've worn your national championship ring
1: well on a scale of one to ten on the size it was actually bigger than i expected it was going to be when i received it back in 2017 so i'd say a 10 um and then you know as a young dumb college kid as a junior you're wearing it to try and keep it safe but also probably to impress girls so probably just a house party so the girls could see it at least but um, I've tried to keep it safe. I keep it at my parents' house back in Johnson City, so nowhere too um, exotic. But junior year in college, it was
0: on campus. It was It was in play. It was. It was at the house parties for sure. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh my gosh, a single man's best friend, the national championship ring. So So let me ask you the the kind of uh, I guess cliche question. So obviously an incredible run for you guys. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you guys won the rally regional, NC State regional, then you yes, then you won Baton Rouge Super Regional, then Omaha, and, and your guys side of the bracket in Omaha, if memory serves, was just loaded. I mean, Florida was over there. And so so here's what I'm looking for. Like if you if, if I said to you, what are the what are your three most vivid memories? Like what were your three moments from that run and any of that postseasons in play? What would you say?
1: Well, firstly, our volunteer assistant, Coach Schilling. We won the Big South tournament, and he cursed us. He said, okay, let's get ready for the regional at Coastal Carolina. And then a week later, no regional Coastal. We have to go to Raleigh. So we felt like we got snubbed. But that's where the first memory happened, which was we were down to our last strike of the season, Um, our last strike, last out in the bottom of the ninth. And Tyler Chadwick, our second baseman, turned first baseman, excuse me, first baseman, turned second baseman, turned quarterback at Coastal Carolina in his sixth year by some magic. He, uh, he wore an 0-2 fastball off the knee and just didn't wear just stone face. Um, so that was <laughs> yes. a magical moment, which led to a couple base hits. Um, the next magical thing was, I guess, a collection of events, which was sweeping LSU. Um, so, you, you know, you don't really realize what you're doing and in the moment. You're just trying to win the game. But looking back on it, going into Baton Rouge, it's loud. People are screaming and you get it done. And that's the second thing. And then the third moment wasn't. Probably the national championship win, but when we get to Omaha, we're still trying to kind of feel out, you know, how we're going to do. We we want to win the thing. We're we know we're there to win the thing, but what really put us over the edge of hey, we can actually do this was actually beating Florida in that opening game.
0: Mm-hmm. Was that Andrew Chadwick or Lord Chadwick, as we were calling him back at the
1: in the day? Uh, Tyler Chadwick. So he he was our first. He's about a 5'8 first baseman.
0: Oh no no. Beck uh the the pitcher the submariner that uh, oh, Beckwith oh. Uh, Andrew Beckwith is that right? Yeah
1: Andrew Beckwith yeah he would throw from up here and down here. Um so I think he had two complete
0: games that called World Series. Um he was the most outstanding player as well. Yeah awesome. Uh, uh last question Matthew. What, how old were you when you started catching? Ooh, um probably. Ten When I was in Little League, I didn't get more serious
1: about it until I wasn't good enough to play shortstop on the school team. So I had to switch to behind the plate. So probably around uh, 13 or 14 is when I got serious about it.
0: Okay, cool. Very good. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Uh, Coach Lou, go ahead.
2: I appreciate you having us on, Runes. My name is Andrew Luella. I'm an assistant coach here at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm from Richmond originally. Left to go down to just outside of Charlotte, played four years at Wingate University, graduated in the spring of 2019. Then came back up to uh, VCU to start my master's degree as a GA. I uh, kind of cut my teeth a little bit. And then this will be my third full season as the uh, volunteer assistant coach.
0: Awesome. Uh, so th- let me ask you about VCU. So, you know, Coach Stiffler's now at Notre Dame. You, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the North Carolina regional last year, you guys went out two and zero. Is that right? You 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 won the first two games. Yeah, we were uh, we had to beat you up a little once
2: at their place to go to a super.
0: Oh man, that's awesome. T- uh, tell us about your third baseman last year. Was it Tyler Locklear? Is that am I saying it right? Yes, yeah, sir. Um, you
2: can't you can't say enough words about how good of a kid he is. Obviously, the baseball side of things, it's unreal. I mean, he hit over four hundred with over twenty home runs. Got got his check. Uh, for sure, is a second-round pick. But I've got two two pieces now. One story I always told about him. Um, he is the single-season and career home run leader at VCU, and he still got more excited when one of his teammates hit a home run than when he hit his own. Um, it just speaks how high a character he is as a young man. And then the second one is uh, kind of recently. I'm not sure. It's a little, little bit on social media, but we do an event at the end of the fall called Ram Sanity, typical like your Omaha Challenge. It's just a mm-hmm. one-night thing instead of. Um, a couple days, different events, and all of that. Uh, but we do t shirts and stuff um, for our players. And obviously, I was the only coach still there, as well as our ops guy, hired a new staff and everything. They hadn't been there a week. We get a phone call from Locke saying he wants to uh, provide those t shirts and those winners' gifts for our players this year. Um, and oh, nice. It's really cool, really, really cool. He came back, he was there um, for Ram Sanity, and I got to throw to him in the cages the next night to see him swing again. Love getting to watch him hit, but he's just an overall great human being and a special, special talent on the baseball field, and I'm going to look up in a couple of years, and he's going to be on a big
0: league roster. Is he a right-handed hitter or a left hand hitter? Right-handed. And he's big, right, like 6'3", 210, something in that range? Yes, sir. Yes, and what, what, right. what, so how, how did he come to VCU? Is he a local guy or is he what yet? Yeah, what do you recall his recruiting story? So he was a freshman my first fall there.
2: Mm-hmm. I wasn't part of his recruiting process. Rich Witten, who's the head coach at FIU now, was our assistant and did that. Um, but he was a big bat from Maryland. Uh, He's actually Coach Witten's first son at VCU. Mm. Um, and the knock on him all he, the reason why he probably didn't end up going to Maryland. Uh, and he got out of the state thankful for us um is the defense was always a little light didn't really have a position he wasn't that great of a defensive third baseman Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and he's probably i'd say six one maybe not six three so undersized for the first base position at probably the big league level um Mm -hmm. according to some um but rich loved him saw him saw him a bunch of times got him down and his freshman year was COVID, and he was kind of coming off the bench a little bit. We had some guys that were older, a little more polished on the defensive side that could swing it. And then obviously that season ended, and then he ran ran away with the third base job his sophomore year. Didn't come off the field, and then he played third for the first half last year. And then our first baseman got hurt, so we moved him over to third base. Uh, excuse me, first base um, for the back half of the season, and that's where he stayed.
0: Love it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, same question for you, Andrew. What? How old were you when you started catching?
2: Uh, about six years old. So in <laughs> T-ball in, in Powhatan, where I'm from. In T-ball, you uh, played about nine games and played each position one one game. Mm-hmm. The game I was supposed to catch it rained. Um, so I hope my parents are listening because they're going to love this story. Um, but they were tired of watching me pick grass in right field at the ripe old age of six. Um, so the next year, during coach pitch, they uh, told me that I had to go tell the coach that I wanted to catch. And so I was like, okay, I do what my parents tell me to. And so I went back there that next year and never came by, never came off of it. I caught. I played a little bit infield and pitched some up until about when I was 11 or 12. But mm-hmm. other than that, I was behind the plate the bulk of the time and never played another position in, in high school or college. Summer ball played a little bit of first base. But other than that, I was behind the dish probably from a, for the vast majority of my career.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Really cool. Good stuff. Coach Dylan. go ahead.
4: Runes, thanks for having us on, man. It's it's great to be with you guys tonight and, and share some stories and share some catching. So um, I'm the current recruiting coordinator, hitting coach, catching guy at Baylor.
0: Um, Zach Dillon, by the way. I, you forgot yeah, you. Zach Dylan. There Sorry, you go. Zach You're good.
4: Um, grew up and kind of split. I was a football coach's son, so spent Most of my childhood in South Florida until 13 and then moved to Des Moines, Iowa and got to attend a great high school with with really strong athletic programs. My dad was our football coach and and also, you know, got to share some really good high school experiences with a bunch of good players that went on to do great things at the college and professional level. So feel blessed for that. And a shout out to Dowling Catholic. From there, I went on to Baylor University, um, spent five years at Baylor played on a college world series team that finished third in the country. Um, That was certainly special as as Matthew had that experience as well. Um, It's kind of fun reliving that with you. And I remember watching that, that team play and that was a heck of a, that was a heck of a run really special for college baseball for sure. So um, from there, I went on into the Baltimore Orioles organization for about three and a half years, got to do that. Um, knew my heart was in college coaching, um, actually got released. I was driving home a week before spring training to see my family, got released in in the middle of the trip, and I was so naive, I thought I was being called to big league camp for back-to-back years, and they let me go, so I just flipped around on I-35 and drove back to Waco and started the last six hours of my master's. Um, was fortunate that Jack Dom took me on at the University of Iowa as a, as a volunteer the following year. I spent two years with Jack and Ryan Brownley and Chris Malzowski. And it was a really good kind of indoctrination into college baseball with, with some really good dudes and experienced guys. Um, Steve Smith brought me back to Baylor in 2012. Um, we were ranked number one in the country, Max Muncie's junior year. Um, had a really good year, got beaten our own Super Regional by Arkansas. Um, from there actually went back up to Iowa as a recruiting coordinator. Um, you know, and, and as we all know in this profession, uh, things, Je- coach Don was on the last year of his, of his deal. And I got a really good year of experience in before we were let go as a staff there, um, spent a year kind of in the travel circuit in Des Moines and started the Iowa sticks program, the high school program there with a, with a great group of dudes. And, um, I was coaching a 12 U game in may that year and my phone rang and it was john cohen at mississippi state so that was that was exciting and um had the opportunity to go down there for a year and be the the hitting and catching guy in the same office with john cohen and butch and nick mingione and i mean you talk about an experience man that was unbelievable year of experience for me um and then I was called, called back to Texas with, with Mitch Thompson at McLennan. I just felt like at that point in my career, I really needed to be on the road recruiting. Um, and I wanted to be back in the state of Texas, um, spent a year at McLennan and then, you know, as, is the crazy, the way the world works um, an opportunity came up in travel ball that um, to really kind of start my own thing. And, and right in the middle of Houston, um, where I kind of took on a, a branch of the Texas 12 and we were able to, over the last five years, really build a, a special program kind of modeled after, you know, a development program and professional or college baseball. And we're able to hire, hire some really good people and do some great things um, at the amateur level of baseball. Um, I think the funniest part about that is, is, is I've been called back into college baseball. I was I was very happy doing what I was doing. Um, but I feel like I've learned so much more in the last five years on that side of things than I ever did you know in the 7 years I was actually in college baseball so you know it's it's it was a really good experience watching everybody else work kind of behind the curtain and and that experience has certainly helped me in this current role I'm in and I'm excited to uh be back at Baylor at home and working for one of my mentors Mitch Thompson who I have the utmost respect for and I'm excited to be on with you guys tonight That's awesome. Hey,
0: Zach, so you mentioned your dad. It sounds like your dad was coaching high school football in South Florida and then gets the job at Dowling. Was he an Iowa person and that was a chance to come home or he was a Floridian?
4: He's a Floridian in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He went up to small division three Cornell college to play where he met my mom, who is a Des Moines, Iowa girl. So Ah. it was, it was her opportunity to come home and be around family. And it was obviously a, a appealing job for him to take and, to move us up there at that time. So um, at the time I, I thought they were crazy and I didn't know what we were doing, you know, as a kid that grew up in South Florida on the beach and now yeah. all of a sudden six months of the year, it's gray and we're in the snow. Um, but it ended up working out really well for me.
0: Yeah. Gosh, that's interesting. So hey, you, you saluted to something, Really cool. I I was going to ask you a question about this, but then your insights dial it in even more for me. So, you know, you're on the travel ball side of things and obviously you had some really good players. So were you kind of saying that, hey, you're, you're getting to watch the way division one coaches and other levels are recruiting because it it was, is that similar to being a high school coach in that regard? So you kind of know what, or, or is it, was the travel scene a way different look at that?
4: Well, I think it, I think it was eye-opening on on a lot of levels. Um, you know, one you get thrown into, you know, as a, as a college baseball coach, on the camp side of things, you get a small peek and kind of into a business and, and how to run a business. But um, on a much larger scale, I was thrown into and, and being the head of it and and having to hire and, and retain good coaches and and build a program and, and structure practices from really a, a program that ran from nine to seventeen. And, and as we grew as a program, you know, we're talking about, you know, hopefully a couple of these 2023s that are going to go in the first round of the draft. So, you know, a pretty wide range of what you're dealing with and a wide range of players and, and ability level um, and being dynamic enough to kind of sort through all that and prioritize what's important on a given day. But but, yeah, to, alluding to what I was speaking on, you know, we, we put over 300 players into college in my time there from 2016 to, I guess, 2022 um you know so there was a fair amount of of conversations being had with college coaches on a daily basis and and then you get your you know your own players experiences with those schools and how they're how they're being recruited and what they're using to recruit them and and how different schools are making offers and and you know stretching their money and utilizing different things to be a draw to to those players so you know you know and really from the division one level through the junior college level and and you know how how the timeline works for different kids and I thought it was I thought it was a really interesting look at the whole scope of of baseball and at every level
0: yeah fascinating really good really cool uh Tyler go ahead
3: runes thanks for having us all man um, my name is Tyler Simmons I'm the director of major at UNC Charlotte. This is, this is my seventh year there. Um, I am raised. Played at Wingate University. Actually played one year with uh, Coach. Uh, my red shirt senior year, he came in and was a, was a freshman. So we got to play together and ever since then. But my dad was a uh, high school coach in the area. Um, born and raised on a baseball field. Uh, I knew I wanted to play, play college baseball, and reaching ranks was was kind of what I wanted. Um, I got asked a lot coming up if I wanted to for him and, and be a high school coach, but uh, my heart was in college baseball. Uh, he's at Liberty for a year, uh, so whenever he would tell me stories about his time as a college coach, I felt drawn to do. Um, and it was, and I get to I get, I get to do it every day now. Um, going on year seven at at Charlotte. Um, um, I was there previously when Warren Hibbs was there, the interim head coach at Wichita State. So I was a volunteer there for three years. Then when Coach Twitter got me in the director of player development positions, so um, been there and get to coach. So it's it's a true it's a true blessing to kind of. Able to coach in our in our hometown, our home, coach Woodard being from Charlotte, Coach Bicknell being from Charlotte. It's pretty cool to be able to coach on a staff, and you got three born and raised in the city and played high school baseball uh, in South Charlotte and so, so wearing wearing a lot. So it's it's a true blessing.
0: That's awesome. Hey, so Tyler, um, so your dad is Greg, right? Yep, and so he he's the head coach at Charlotte Christian and. Did did you and Toby play for your dad? We did,
3: we did. So, Coach, so Toby and I have very similar, similar. Uh, so Toby, Toby played for my dad when I was a kid. And so Toby tells stories of me all the time, hanging, running around on the field. And then Toby went on to play at wing at university, uh, which is where. I play. So it's pretty cool how uh, it's come full circle.
0: Oh, my gosh, man, the Wingate Bulldogs. We are like, we're, uh, we're the marketing team for Wingate <laughs> tonight. So, hey, and, and, and so um, your, your dad, on your, your Twitter page, I saw that your dad um, had recently been diagnosed with cancer. And, um, yeah, yeah, obviously, it sounds like the support, you know, the baseball community in your area is tremendous support for your dad. Could you give us a quick update on how your pop's doing?
3: So uh, um, not too long ago, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, he's been uh, treatment for the past past couple weeks, maybe maybe month, month and a half. Uh, scans last Monday. You know, uh, the doc, doctor said things are going in the right direction. Had the other night, so he spent a few nights in the ICU, but he is recovering strong out of the ICU. Praise God! So we're hoping we're hoping he can come home, maybe Tuesday. Tuesday or sometime next. Things are moving forward. It was just kind of, kind of a fluke thing that happened, and um, like I said, he's uh, he's pulling through right now, so he's he's recovering well.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, we're sending good vibes, thoughts, and prayers to your pop for sure. So I appreciate that. Yeah, good stuff. The um, hey boys, let, let's let's start to dive into the catching piece. So Matthew, I'm going to come back to you. Um, let, here, let me let me throw this at you guys. I want your favorite college catcher of all time. Could be someone you played with, someone you played against, someone you watched growing up, could be someone you've coached or coached against too. Um yeah, so and and tell me why. I'll give you guys two. So, early 2000s, Damian Alvarado at Stanford, Brett K at Cal State Fullerton. Both programs were humming at the time. They were Omaha regulars. Um damian alvarado and uh, let me tell you guys by the way brett case now the head coach at j sarah catholic in in orange county and he's got a i mean like, like nine <laughs> coach k's got like 15 division one players ever, on every single roster I, I may be actually lowballing that it might be more than 15 but just a dynamic program so here's why i love those two guys neither of them hit third or fourth in the order they both were i would call them defense first guys and they had a swagger and, like, an edge and an arrogance back there that was just – it just was a winning quality. Like, you just – you notice those guys back there, just the way the chest puffed out, like, f- afraid of nothing. Um, and, and you, you know, you th- there were really great players on both their teams. But, man, th- their whole persona behind the plate – was if I'm being honest, even though Coach K is one of, a great friend now, I actually disliked them immensely back then, which is probably the best compliment I could give those guys. Like They were just miserable to play against in a very positive way for their team. So there you go. So, Matthew, there there's my first curveball of the night for you. A, a college catcher, an all-timer for you, a favorite. Go ahead.
1: Of course, I'd love to say myself as one of my favorite <laughs> catchers. But um, I think the first one that comes to mind and for a a different reason is Buster Posey because I think catching is probably one of the hardest positions to play in sports in general and to just seamlessly transition to, I think he was a middle infielder to back there where he's catching ACC pitchers seemingly overnight and then becoming a a major league baseball player and he's going to be a Hall of Famer one day. I think that really speaks to his athleticism. So, And if you get to, I'll also choose a second Um, One of my mentors when I was at Coastal, uh, Tucker Frawley, Um, you know, I've seen videos and just had so many conversations with him about his passion for catching, which kind of maybe pushed me towards this kind of route in life as well. So those are my two, Buster Posey and then uh, an old Coastal catcher, Tucker Frawley.
0: Yeah. Every time I think of Buster Posey, which is a great answer, I think of Mike Martin Sr., Florida State Hall of Famer, no college coach in the history of college athletics in any sport, in any sport, have won more games than Mike Martin Sr. Think about that. No one's won more contests than that man. And if you gave him truth serum and said, who's the best seminal of all time, without hesitation, I predict he would say Buster Posey. Like, think about all the great players he's had. And, you know, just for all the reasons you mentioned, Matthew, plus the mental makeup and just the, yeah, that, that's a great, great call. So, Andrew, go ahead. Favorite college catcher.
2: I've got two as well. Um, another yes. one more more recent more recent days uh joey Bart out of georgia tech uh, it's kind of a two-fold thing obviously he was the man coming out of college uh but he was in the giants the giants organization kind of the heir apparent to Posey. and we share a double-a facility with the flying squirrels which is the giants double-a organization um so kind of getting to see that come full circle and see him go straight to the bigs um from there and then just kind of seeing stuff on social media and hearing from their staff members about how he goes about his business, it's uh, top-notch, and it's cool to see him. Obviously, Posey's the man, probably the best college catcher there ever was, um, but it's it's cool to see him kind of coming up, and he's going to hopefully take the helm over there with them for a long time. And then my second one is a guy I played with, his name's Logan McNeely. He was a uh, year two behind me at Wingate, and it's, it's a crazy story. He uh, caught caught a few games here and there when I was still there, um, had some really bad knees. We called him knees because his knees were so messed up. Great. And it got to the point where he probably shouldn't have been catching anymore. Um, had to wear knee savers to just to catch because his knees were so blown up. Dude was MVP of, on, of the uh, College World Series and won a national championship uh, his last year. Um, and so it's, awesome. it was really cool to see both sides of that. I was there for the game when they won. He didn't come off the field, probably couldn't walk. He never came out of the game the whole postseason, um, but seeing how he went about his business when he was catching behind me um, as a young guy and to see him kind of grow into that um, and kind of reach just about everything in his potential that he could uh, go out on top of the world as a college baseball player is uh, really cool for me. He's a very close personal friend, so I wanted to be able to plug that uh, because it's just a testament to his work ethic and
0: who he is. Well done, Mies. Logan McNeely, is that, did I say that right? Yes, sir. Awesome. Gosh, and that, that that's an elite nickname right there. The easy 80 nickname. Well done by the Wingate Bulldogs right there. Zach, go ahead. Favorite college man, catcher.
4: Man, I got two. I gotta keep them both at home. One one was uh Kelly Shopik, who was second rounder, Johnny Bench Award winner at Baylor the year prior to, to me getting there. And and he, he was the kind of guy that, you know plus plus competitor, fierce competitor. Um that kind of was a part of the era that got Baylor baseball on the map and got us going again um, and really set the, started the ball rolling up for us having a bunch of really, really successful catchers behind the plate for a long period of time. Um, so Kelly B1, and then uh, one guy just made his debut this year, Shea Langlier's, um, was the ninth overall pick out of Baylor and broke in with the A's this year. So I'll give it to my two Baylor guys.
0: Oh, man, Shea Langlier's. Uh, I mean, Kelly Shopik was a famous name back in the day. Shea Langoliers, I never forget trying to describe him to somebody. And I just, the the only way I had, I had Baylor for a game one night and and it was the best way I could describe Shea was he literally changed the game with his arm. Like you just don't get that many opportunities to do that. And if I recall, there was like a, um, a bunt play where he went to the lead base where he probably shouldn't have, but he had so much arm strength. Um, I mean, Oh gosh, what a talent! That is that is a be, great yeah. call, for sure. Yeah, good one. Tyler, go ahead. Favorite college go. catcher, and and go, go feel go go dose if you want.
3: <laughs> I'm gonna go with Posey. Growing up, I remember uh, when I was in high school. he was playing college, and above my light switch in my sports uh, article of, of Buster Posey with all of his stats up, and I had staple every night when I walked out of my room remember when I flipped the lights off I was I was looking at Buster Posey's stats and the one guy that I've always really enjoyed watching watching in college baseball and even in the big leagues now also a uh, uh, catcher that that I've really enjoyed watching when I was when I was coming up.
0: Love it. Yeah the, the thing about Posey too like I, I this is inspiring me to go back and look at his college stats. It was like he was ev- he did everything, you know, to your point, Matthew, too, like he was a shortstop. Then he was a closer. Then he was a catcher. He's sitting three hole. I mean, just yeah. And of course, the, he had the pro career that he had. No, no doubt about it. So, um hey, Matthew, let me come back to you. Uh Let's talk about receiving. We're We're, we're going to break down different parts of the game. So so let's say I'm starting out and I'm going to start working with catchers. Try to give me a summary on, on, on what's important in receiving. Like, yeah, talk to me about working with catchers on receiving. And, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you guys one thing that's top of mind for me. You can, you can address it or not address it. But, you know, the old school baseball folks, myself, I'm, I, I'm in that camp sometimes. You know, we used to be taught that you had to be quiet behind the plate. And now guys are really active in moving the baseball um, and you know, the, the old myth was that umpires are going to get so mad at you and then you won't get any strikes. Well, clearly that's not the case, but yeah, let's, that, let's start there, Matthew. Talk to me about receiving what, what's important to you in receiving.
1: Um, I think a few things you have to consider before you start talking about any type of instruction with the receiving as in, you know, how old is the player? Um, mm-hmm. are you coaching a 15 year old that's getting into catching for the first time? Is he an absolute tank behind the plate? Um, is he a guy that's already developed and he's 20 years old and he's strong in the weight room and he can do the things you want him to do. Um, and then after that, you know, how easily does it come to the guy? So a lot of guys can, maybe they can sing really well. Maybe they can hit really well. Maybe they can talk to a girl very easily. Some guys can just catch really easily as well. Um, and so that's a conversation I've had with my mentor Tucker is that some guys can just, they just catch it cleanly. Just know how to pocket it. But in terms of you know the glove movement, I think the thing that you want to reinforce them out of the gate, no matter what level they're at, high school, college, and I guess entry level pro is we want to dominate the bottom part of the strike zone. So we're trying, yes, we're trying to move the ball, manipulate the ball, but the bottom third of the strike zone is what we're trying to win every pitch, right? So, and then when it comes to what you're teaching, everyone does things a little bit differently. I'm sure coaches on here may teach something differently than what I would teach or um you know what my mentor may teach but I think when it comes to manipulating the ball and moving it um as long as it's not too much and it's consistent across the board the entire game um I it it should work in, in the long run uh, maybe the other coaches may have something different to say
0: I love that yeah that the, the the even though pitching at the top of the zone has become so trendy and for good reason it's such a swing and miss uh, you know like If you can, if you can be great at the bottom, I I just, I'll say this, putting my coaching hat on to back your point up, Matthew, you're just begging your pitchers to throw the ball at the bottom of the zone. And then your catcher is just taking that pitch and just smashing it into the ground. And the pitcher's looking at you like, okay, we're done, right? Like that stinks. Like that's not going to work. So having a catcher that can back you up and just crush the bottom of the zone in a positive way is, yeah, I, I am I am all in on that. So very good. Good start there. Andrew, go ahead. You go next.
2: That's a great point. Um, kind of training age is a big, um, if you're working with a 10-year-old, that's parents wanting to catch for the first time, or if you've got converted shortstop in college or you've got a kid that you recruited that's been catching since he was 13 and has a really strong foundation that's a really really good point out of matt there um making sure that you're not trying to put the cart before the horse so to speak um and make sure that you're kind of tabling that development um according to their skill level Um, for the sake of this i'll assume uh say sophomore junior level college catcher that's been catching for a while and you're trying to kind of fine-tune things or maybe it's a freshman you just got in I think the biggest piece for me is what do you have to do with your body positioning and pre-pitch to keep your ba- your mitt below the baseball? I think everything we're trying to do stems from being below the baseball because like you're about rooms, the worst thing as a catching coach and as a pitcher or a pitching coach is when a do dots of pitch at the knees and our guy dunks it. Um, it's the last thing we want because it's a strike, now it's a ball, flips a count, and we'll probably touch on that later on, but being able to go 0-1 instead of 1-0 is huge at our level. Um, But I think being able to stay below the baseball and then on the movement piece, understanding that there's no such thing as strike plus. It's a kind of a term I use with our guys a lot. Um, We don't have to get the pitch that's just below the knee up to the belt. That's not where we're trying to manipulate it to. We're not getting two strikes out of that pitch. Um, We need to make sure that our setup and our positioning is able to manipulate the ball slightly, but from borderline ball, and now it looks like a strike to the umpire. And I think that's the biggest thing our guys struggle with grasping, especially in today's age, but they have so much access to video and Twitter and content with uh, social media is that they see all these these center field views of guys like Barnes, Posey, Bart, Yachty, and it looks like they're yanking the ball afoot when in reality it's not that big of a move. Um, and our guys have to understand that their job is to make borderline pitches look like strikes, catch strikes and keep them in the zone and keep the balls that are off the plate in the pocket and toss it back to the pitcher and
0: tell them to strike the next pitch. Yeah, well said. Really good. Zach, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback on all those thoughts, I mean, our deal is trying to be – we're trying to be quiet. We're trying to present a good target, you know, kind of from the old school era. Like, I want want the pitcher to see a good target at the 18-inch line down there. Give him something to throw to, but at the same time, we're trying to dominate the bottom of the zone and stay beneath the ball and work down to up and left to right. I mean, the glove stays on the left side of the body and we got to be strong on, on on that plane. So, um you know, I think I think where I've grown um from a coaching standpoint and and all the stops I've made is is probably meeting the player in the middle, you know, and and trying to find cuz these guys do have so much information and they've been around good people and maybe they've you know, mastered the way they do it. And they do it pretty well. So I'm I'm way less rigid on our, you know, universal technique as maybe I once was when I was fresh out of pro ball entering my coaching career. And I'm going to meet those guys halfway and say, hey, man, maybe it just doesn't need to be that big a move as as it's already been alluded to in this this talk. Like, we're looking for subtle. We're trying to get the ball back to the edges and give ourselves a chance with the same hand, wrist, and elbow position. Um, We're trying to catch the ball on the move. You know, we're not trying to catch it and move it. We're trying to catch mm-hmm. it on the move and it's a sleight of hand really is all we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to work beneath it. We're trying to work left to right and be strong at the point of contact and be able to manipulate it back to the edges or get the ball back up to the 18 inch line above the ground. Um, I think the one, the one big change we've all discussed now is the the one knee stuff um, between our primary and secondary and, is there a place for it? Is there not? I think the one area for us um, that that maybe there is an absolute is I don't want our guys on a knee in their secondary. secondary, um, but I do see a great deal of value in getting those pitches at the bottom of the zone um, and being able to create a better posture to work underneath the ball in our primary stance on a knee. Um, so I, I do see that as a, a positive that, that's come into play over the last couple of years in baseball. But um, really, I think it's that. I think I think the other area that, that has grown in, in my in my brain over the last five or six years in coaching is just accountability and focus pitch to pitch. You know, we're really the only position on the field where the ball is coming at us every play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's coming at us, and we got to be ready. In fact, you know, the, the amount of games I've played in my life somewhere else from behind the plate are probably less than 20. So when, I, when I've gone out and, and played a different spot, it's almost like a foreign game to me. It's, it's not the same game um, from the level of concentration and, and focus you have to have on every play. So um, I think that's something that we hammer into our guys. Like, you've got to be accountable on every pitch. Like, you've got to be ready to make a play every pitch. And um, I think over time, they train themselves to do that and be able to check you out briefly and check back in because it's coming at you again.
0: So. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Oh, good stuff. Uh, there'll be some good follow up questions later. Let, let's keep going. Tyler, go ahead. Let's uh, let's let's uh, have you put a put a bow on receiving for us.
3: Similar to the other guys owning the bottom of the zone is probably the most important thing. Uh, but one thing we talk about strike strikes and winning the marginal one. So mm-hmm. winning those 50 50s and keeping those. That's our main focus and our main objective. Um, and I think it's also really important working with your, each of their move, keeping it their own. Um, so all three of our catchers, they all have their own ball. Whether it's we have some guys that like to come in, ride the ground, and then ride the ground back out, turn with their with their relaxed move. So all three of our guys are a little bit different approach to baseball. Um, I kind of look at it like it's. Hitting from a little bit of a standpoint. So, they have a different stance, a different load, but they're all ultimately, we want them to get to the same spot and the same baseball and keep those strike strikes and win the marginal one. So, uh, we try to keep what it comes to that, but I think being versatile with your catchers and, and, and working with their move is, uh, is really important, especially when it comes to, to college receivers who who do have, they've got so much data, so much video available at their fingertips. They can get on YouTube and watch videos back to back to back, which is, which is great, you know, and each of those guys are that they're trying to to emulate or they're trying to use their move. So we play around with their move and their approach to the ball. Um, And we try to kind of keep it individualized. come out to our practice you're going to see three different approaches to the ball but all three of our guys are out and keep keep strike strike, and win when the marginal pitches
0: yeah that's good really good good Good. yeah that's well done boys that's four very uh very good answers um man these catching talks really get the juices flowing this is great so uh matthew let's come back to you let's talk about blocking i'm going to phrase my question this way but I, but I want you guys to go wherever you want with this on blocking. So the way I'm going to ask my question is, what, what, what is the difference between a great blocker and an okay blocker? Is it mentality? Is it setup? Is it the action? Um, so I, I want you to go anywhere you want with that. But I'm, I'm just I'm thinking about, hey, what, what makes a great blocker great? What makes an average blocker? What holds that guy back? Um, those are three areas that come to mind for me. But again, you guys go wherever you want. Go ahead, Matthew, kick us off.
1: I think two things come to mind first is, you know, the will to and the want to, you know, the the will and desire to get hit by the ball that could be traveling anywhere from 75 to 100 miles an hour. Um, So the desire to block that ball for your teammates to do your job, you know, that's one of the reasons why you're back there is not necessarily to be a wall, but to keep everything in front. Um, So that desire and that want to. And then a second one is, like I said before, some guys are just good at it, like, when I think about myself as a player, blocking wasn't ever something that I struggled at. I just got back there, put on the gear, coach flipped on the machine. I just went and blocked like the ball stayed right in front of me the entire time. Um, and as I get into coaching, I've seen guys like that. They can just get back there and it just happens for them. And I think that's for a couple different reasons. Number one, maybe they just have excellent hip mobility, knee mobility, ankle mobility. They just have it all there, right? Um, other times like our catcher last year, I told him, I give him a little shout out, Evan Russell, you know, he had a catch on a right knee, the, every single pitch of the year, not one pitch to he catch in a traditional stance. So for him to be a successful blocker, which he was, he had to put himself in a position which was going to make himself successful. So, um, number one, the will and desire to, but number two, um, putting yourself in a position that's going to make you succeed to eventually the final goals to keep everything in front.
0: Yep. Gosh, Evan Russell, we could do a whole podcast on Evan Russell. I'll just I'll sum it up this way, Matthew, is of last year for us at D1 Baseball, I think we had the Vols, like let's call it like 18th in the preseason. And one of the reasons why I thought it was a very defensible ranking is because you guys, everybody on your pitching staff threw like 100 miles an hour. And Evan Russell hadn't caught, to my knowledge, since like high school – and so he's just going to go back there and catch in the SEC that staff. Like, it wasn't just catch. It was catch that staff with all these future first rounders. And he, you know, like, it, it felt like somebody pulled the fire alarm. Like, this can't go well. And not only did it go well, it went best team in the country well, right? Like, I mean, oh, my gosh. Yeah, good, good, good on you, Evan Russell.
1: Yeah. Really cool. I mean, it was in, like in my first year of coaching college, it's unbelievable to see you know, the work ethic and, and again, the desire just to be good at catcher. Um, Maybe just similar to the Buster Posey story, he slides in from left field and he just, you know, obviously he had to make some adjustments with the receiving. He tried the traditional stance and um, I think we kind of agreed as a staff that that might not be the best fit for him. So, but um, all the credit in the world goes to that guy, just the unbelievable amount of work and time he put in to ultimately do it for the team.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the great stories of last season. Totally agree. Coach Lou, go ahead.
2: That's awesome. He was fun to watch. Fun to watch back there, especially after seeing seeing the transition. So that's that's really cool to hear about that. Um, I think what makes a great blocker uh, is mentality, for one. Uh, mm-hmm. Like Matt was saying, you have to make sure that you are, are being a servant leader. You're back there to, to serve the pitching staff, serve the team. And it's something we talk about with our guys all the time, whether it's blocking, catching, throwing, team D, Bunts, first and thirds, all of that is putting the team before yourself. And at the end of the day, letting somebody bounce a 100-mile-an-hour fastball off your chest is pretty selfless. Um, and guys that kind of buy into that quicker typically end up being the ones that have the most success. And then I think two more pieces, pieces to that is defining success with a block. Um, obviously, in training scenarios, we want to make sure our guys are getting it right in the belly button and staying within two feet. But that's a perfect world. There's no runner. There's no, cra- no crowd, nothing like that. Um, but making sure that they understand that a successful blocking game is not allowing somebody 90 extra feet. Mm. It doesn't have to be pretty. You stand on your head and kick it with your feet, whatever it does, to keep the ball from getting too far away to where the guy's going to get an extra 90 feet. And I think our guys kind of bought into that a lot, um, flipping their mindset from being perfectly technical um, to go block the baseball as opposed to doing whatever they could to make sure stayed as close as possible to them, and a base runner couldn't advance 90 feet, whether it was we threw them out or that the ball was too close. They didn't even try to jump it Um, from there. uh, But, yeah, I think those are kind of the two big pieces um, on the blocking side. And then the last one, sorry, just came back to me, Um, individuality with our guys. Um, Being able to have – we've got some guys that block really, really well out of two feet um, basically, our two guys are going to split time this year, that split time last year behind the dish for us, polar opposites. One guy stays on two feet the whole time, barely goes to a knee, does sometimes with nobody on. The other guy is kind of your hybrid uh, kickstand mm-hmm. type guy. But we found that he is an elite blocker when he's not on two feet, when he gets on two feet, he's not as mobile in his hips and his ankles doesn't move that well. But when he's kind of in that read, read ball flight, read base runner kickstand mentality, He's able to throw out of it if he needs to, and he really, really smothers the baseball. And then the other guy we've got is a six-year guy, and he's super mobile in his hips, and the ball hits him in the belly button, stays a foot away from him just about every daggone time, it seems like, in games from two feet. So being able to train your guys in an environment around what makes them successful and not trying to cookie-cut them um, will give them the highest potential for success when it comes to when it really matters in the game.
0: Yep. It's so funny. Um, the other group was very similar to you guys in that I think us non-catching people think all catchers should be the same robot, like it all should look exactly the same. But then I talk to you guys that are catching experts, and it's like, no, it's got to be individual. Just just like you said, Tyler, it's it's like coaching hitters. Like the, these these dudes are all unique. So no, nah, really good. Zach, go ahead. Your thoughts on blocking?
4: Yeah. The- to elaborate on what Andrew said, I think I think that's exactly right. I, I think there there is a piece at the college level. Um, you know, even the division one level, maybe our guys don't command it as well as they do in the big leagues, and maybe the misses are a little bit bigger. So I do feel there's there's a place and and for a lateral move that's more explosive at times, um, that the guy on two feet might be a little more dynamic making. Uh, but at the same time, like not all of us are built the same from a mobility standpoint. And it, and it doesn't, you know, some guys aren't, aren't as good and aren't as free when they're on two feet. So I have seen it work both ways. Um, obviously, it works all the way up to the big leagues in, in a couple different techniques. Um, for me, you know, we define our, our plus block as the guy not moving up 90 feet. So we spend an inordinate amount of time not only blocking the ball, but retrieving the ball. And and getting to our feet. I think there's two things that stop the guy from moving up 90 feet or give us a best chance of throwing the guy out. And that's getting the ball in the bare hand as quick as we possibly can and getting to our feet as quick as we possibly can. So we do a ton of block and recover and rapid fire blocking, you know, where where it's kind of without thought and without mind because there's times in the game, and I think all the guys that have played back there can attest to, you know, there's times where you get caught and it's like you're without thought and all of a sudden you just move and it's like, how'd I get there? You know, and and when we're talking about having to make a cognitive decision in less than 0. 0.4 seconds of whether we're going to block a baseball is the guy running, or are we going to sit there and receive it? You know, I think we got to be in a pretty athletic spring loaded position that we're confident in being in and that we can work out of. Um, I think it's a, a dynamic athletic move um, uh, from a block. I'm talking about the block and recover standpoint that, you know, there's a reason we all teach our offenses that, we're hunting the ball down angle out of the hand and we're going to second base because it's that tough of a play to make defensively, Um, you know, but I think, you know, the more we can emphasize, not only the block aspect, but the actual block and recover and throw with accuracy to throw somebody out in that place expected to be made. I think that's, that's where we all want to land.
0: Yeah. Love that. Tyler, go ahead. Wrap us up on blocking. The uh,
3: certainly probably one of the most important things when it comes to blocking um, for me, it's like one. A is the ability to read the ball flight. So how 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 well can you read that ball? Being able to do that is going to help you kind of delay that decision. Because if we can make a move without last minute, then that's a win, right? Right. Anytime we can kind of avoid the the block or we can make a delay, it'll be a win for us. And then on top of that is keeping the ball close and in front. Um, I remember. Remember when I was, they did the hula hoop drill, hula hoop drill in, the, in the front of the plate. So everything had to be blocked back. As now as if we just keep the ball in front and close, you know that's a win for us. So, um, but just the ability to read ball flight and how late can we make a decision on that on that pitch?
0: Mm, good stuff. Uh, let's do this because you guys you guys kind of teased it a little bit. So Matthew, coming back to you. Um, this time I'm going to try to keep you to only pick one. Give me your favorite catching drill. You can, only, you can only pick one drill. What's your favorite catching drill? Could be in any of the areas. I think um, probably the most simple as it can be. You
1: know, fire on our spin ball that we have here. I think a lot of programs have it now and set it um, catchable, but still rather difficult, probably, you know, 95 plus, and it's probably a little bit closer in terms of feet than 60 feet. Um, And see if they can catch it flush. See if they can catch it in the pocket. Um, That's going to be the goal every time. I think that'd be the number one thing when it comes to catching and receiving.
0: What's the name of the machine again? Spinball.
1: Spinball. And is it fastball
0: only, or you can manipulate the pitches?
1: Any type of pitch. So any type of uh, pitcher that you have the information, in you can plug in that data, and it can put that pitch in there.
0: And do you? And you said you go a little bit closer than 60 feet, even
1: yeah so like here the machine is set up probably a little bit closer than 60 feet just because of the cage length mm. um, so and to see if the catcher can do it you know and what their limiting factor is are they getting rushed are they mentally sped up well, what's the thing that's limiting them from catching a flush
0: oh that's awesome very cool uh, Andrew go ahead favorite drill
2: that's a really good one it's- kind of weed out the herd a little bit there with that you guys just get in there and whack really really hard fastballs off the machines that's good stuff i think my my favorite one probably piggybacks off of that um adds a little bit uh less impact necessarily from the 9500 mile an hour fastball but more of the uh, cognitive response to it um is the we call it the Lucroy drill um there's a video all-star put out uh the catching company about with him doing it during spring training but basically you've got the machine set up whether it's 90-mile-an-hour uh, fastball, a big 12-6 breaker, uh, whatever it may be, and you've got the coach behind the machine, uh, and he feeds one ball, and it's in the air. Guy catches it, he puts his head down, then the coach adjusts the machine, whether keeps it there, moves it in and out, or then turns it into a block. Um, and then you say ready, guy lifts his head up, has to react to the next pitch coming in. I think it's been a huge piece for our guys. They struggle with it early, um, but it's like uh, Tyler was talking about too – how late we can delay our response uh, when we're reading ball flight, when we might not have to block or balls we think we can't catch, we actually can. Uh, it trains that in a controlled environment, but it also trains them to be explosive and reactive to the pitch that's supposed to be right down the middle. And it ends up being 10 feet in front of you. And you got to put something <laughs> on it and keep it in front. So I think our guys definitely struggle. They struggle with it early on. But once they get a feel for it, it's kind of uh, the most bang for your buck in a setting where we might not have that much time with them in a week or a day, Uh, we can really, really develop them from both sides of a receiving and blocking. You can mix in transfers as well. You can give a runner call on the ball in the air or the ball in the dirt, and they have to react pick, not block. Um, It's just multifaceted, and I love it for the guys.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Like, just as the non-catcher, you're watching a game and you see a catcher just completely bone a, a ball, and you're like, "Man, how hard could it be to concentrate for 130 pitches?" Right? Like, it doesn't like, it, it, isn't that our job? Like, we really can't concentrate for 130 pitches. But then I talk to you guys, and I think about all the different things that are on the catcher's plate, and you're like, "Man, I'm surprised they don't clank more balls." Right? <laughs> it's so, oh, so great. Zach, go. Let's go to you. Favorite catching drill.
4: Yeah, Andrew, Andrew kind of stole mine. That's a that's a good pregame lead-up drill for all catchers. Like, I call it first and third drill because everything's in play. Like, mm. block, the runner call, the receiving, it's all there and it's all happening right now. Um, and then whoever the coach is, you know, I'll manipulate the machine pitch to pitch to make it a block or make it a ball in the air or mix in a runner call. But I think anything that simulates the, the decision, right, like that has to be made in-game with runners on base when, when it's all on the line, like, here it comes, like, am I going to react or am I not? You know? And I think the more we can put them in that environment where they're having to make that decision and and be able to recognize ball flight and and be able to make good decisions with their eyes, uh, better off they're going to be. Um, some of my favorite, just from a technique standpoint, um, we will do a ton of rapid fire blocking where the recovery phase is more of a knees to feet. Maybe that, maybe it's three reps, maybe it's two, maybe it's five where it's, it's fast paced. And again, without thought and trying to get their body to kind of naturally organize itself to react the way we want them to react in a, in a quick, in a quick matter. Um, and we'll do the same thing with our throwing footwork throwing footwork as far as, Maybe they'll get three balls in a row and they're working footwork and transfer to second base. They're not going through the throwing phase, but they're letting the ball travel and the ball turn their feet and get their feet on the ground and reset. And And it's happening quick. And we're trying to train a little twitch and get our bodies going and and really playing freely, you know, um, is, is what I'm trying to get to. You know, you get a lot of the young kids. We've got two freshmen this year that are big, strong, physical dudes, but maybe they're not the stiffest or or swiftest of feet yet. And and stuff like this has really freed them up and made them more athletic behind the plate. So, you know, is it the absolute of absolute drills? I don't know. But it's something I've always done, and it's helped our guys improve and react in game situations better.
0: Mm, Love it. Tyler, go ahead.
3: Coach, he uh, he stole my favorite drill as well. So I won't be an (laughs) echo, but uh, we'll mix in fastballs, blocks, and – runner calls as well it's it's a staple of ours especially for early work pregame work but probably my second favorite drill is we'll do we'll do extended uh, so we'll put the hack attack behind the mound probably 70 feet um and we'll do we'll do slow loopy breaking balls and so it forces the guy to it forces our guys to feel too early they're gonna feel it we want want them to almost feel like they're late to the ball because that's what helped them. That's the kind of cue that they get from that standpoint. When it's going to help them feel that move up through the baseball. So it's a little bit less of pounding them, and it gives them time to feel the move. And I think it's a great drill. to working on a new move, or is, or is maybe new to the position. Um, um, and I think it's a great way for around and learn what move works for them and how they how they kind attack the baseball.
0: Mm, love it. That's good. All right, let's sneak one more question in. We'll, we'll go over an hour. That's OK. It's the holidays. People are need, need a little extra workout. So Matthew, coming to you, this is the final one. So let's say I'm going to ask you a general question, even though I know who the specific catcher I'm working with really matters. But let me ask the general question. You guys take it wherever you want. Let's say i got a catcher who's really skilled, really, you know a talented kid. He's good at the craft. But the area where I need him to develop and grow is just be a better presence behind the plate, be a, you know, the leadership presence The, you know, maybe some kids got to dial it down, like yelling at every pitcher, like they're a dog is not the way, but also being, you know, a mime isn't good back there either. Right. So I'm I'm looking for something that you've seen that has worked helping a catcher be more of a presence back there from a leadership standpoint. You, You kick us off, Matthew.
1: Uh, I think a a couple of background things is, you know, first of all, how are you talking to the player as a coach? You know, like, are Mm. are you yelling at him a lot? Like, is it hard to get through to him? Um, Is he easy to talk to? Is he intelligent? So in terms of how you're communicating with him, first of all, how is that going? You know, what is his personality in general? Is his personality maybe something like mine where when I got to college, I, I wouldn't say I was quiet, but more reserved, but still felt like I could communicate with the pitching staff or is it somebody that, maybe was the linebacker of the high school football team and, you know, says let's go to the pitcher. So I think slowly but surely earning the players' trust and showing them that you have their best interest in mind and saying, hey, here's what's going to get you on the field. Here's what's going uh, to help our pitching staff have the most success because at the end of the day, um, Coach Schnall, who is my catching coach at Coastal, and Coach Elander, who is a catching coach here, Um, You know, they have both said that the main goal and I completely agree with this is that the main goal is to have the pitching staff be as good as they possibly can. So um, ultimately, slowly but surely, you know, working towards that goal of being a good communicator with the staff, being a liaison between the pitching staff and the pitching staff and the coaching staff.
0: So um, it's a slow burn to get there. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. That that's right. There there is no silver bullet for this. It's there's a lot of growth and maturity here. Andrew, go ahead. Same topic. How do you help somebody in that area? That that kind of leadership um, area of catching. I
2: think trust definitely is the biggest piece of it. Um, it's kind of a threefold thing. It's trust that they have with you as their coach. You have to make sure that before you're trying to get on them to, to lead your pitching staff, lead your team, because, again, it's the old cliche that catcher's a the quarterback of the field. Not everybody's personality is built for that. Um, and if they don't trust you and what you're telling them um, or you're not able to get through to them like Matt was talking about, they're not going to be able to buy into it. So being able to teach, not necessarily teach, but show them that you trust them and that what you're saying and what you want them to do um, has a reasoning um, and has backing in it, um, that they can trust that, take that out onto the field. Then um, bringing that trust into with the pitching staff. Um, biggest piece is making sure those guys love throwing to you. Um, it's really, really easy to to command a presence, lead the team, run the defense. When those pitchers know that they spike that 0-2 breaking ball like they're supposed to, it's getting blocked. That guy steals, we're getting a throw off on the bag. We're going to get him out when we can. Um, and that when we're, we're getting pitches borderline, that our catchers are winning. It's something small and simple, but the pitchers talk about that in the bullpen i gotta, I got to have this guy catch me today in the scrimmage. He's been dunking everything in the last two outings. Um, it, was, it was a real conversation, so making sure that the catchers are on the front end of that and that they're in the bullpen with those guys as much as they can. One of the biggest things we have our guys do is catch all of their flat work, all of their bullpens, any chance we get in a practice setting, whether a guy's got 10 fastballs flat ground at the end of his throw program, get a catcher out there. Make them catch them, make them see it because it helps them with tracking the baseball, because every, every pitcher's ball does different stuff. doesn't matter mm-hmm. the pitch. It's all not the same. They're all unique. So it helps their eyes get adjusted to that. But something as simple as that builds a relationship with those guys. Um, it's a huge, huge piece of that, and um, making sure that there is a general trust between the catcher, the coach, and then the pitching staff and the catcher, and then being, like Matt was saying, the liaison on in game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got sign systems in place to be able to, where pitches missed, because obviously from the dugout, we've got a side view. We can't see those uh, perfectly. Uh, where guys are set up in the batter's box, how the umpire's zone is, all of that. Um, and typically the timid guy guys is not going to be ready to do all of that yet. Um, and if you've got to catch a freshman, it might be tough for him to take that on. But building the trust in that you expect them to do that and that you're having their input being valued in how we game plan and how we attack that hitter or the next one, it gives them a sense of ownership and pride um, over that, and it makes it a little easier for them to do so. Um, I think mm. a really, really good example of that, we, we saw it in the regional, um, and sometimes guys don't even realize that maybe it's their body language or how they're acting is kind of transient towards the, uh, the rest of the team. Our guy that caught, he's a fifth-year guy. He's thankfully, a sixth-year, we got him back this year. But we were three or four innings into that elimination game, and he was a wet noodle back there. Super, super passive, not his normal self. And he was caught up in the moment completely unaware. So we, he got in the dugout. We had a conversation about it, and he was able to flip that switch. Thankfully for the back half, we made it a good ball game. But bringing awareness to them um, is a huge piece because sometimes with everything like we've talked about, there's a lot going on, a lot mm-hmm. going on. And sometimes guys not, might not be aware that they are falling off from the leadership side. But being able to point that out to them in a constructive way so that they can fix it. And allow them to do that in their own way on the field is huge. And kind of circle back to my main point, you can't do that without trust. If they don't trust yeah. you, they're not going to take that conversation the right way. So establishing that on the front end allows you to make those in-game small adjustments or have a tough conversation with a kid when you really need to to get them going back in the right
0: direction. Yep, well said. Zach, go ahead. Same topic. <laughs>
4: I'll bring a little different component into it and and include the pitching coach. I think all of us have to be able to work kind of as a, you know, catching coach, the catchers, the pitching coach, all really have to be on the same page of what we're looking for and what we're trying to get out of our staff and what we're trying to get out of those guys from behind the plate. Um, For me, you know, that building the trust and rapport with the catchers is, is something that is, an absolute from day one, you have to have their attention. You have to have their trust to, to really get anything out of them. Um, but some of the things we're trying to get to is where we're able to communicate the game through the guy behind the plate, you know, so left-handed hitter comes up, Hey man, our guy needs to know he needs to get over on the ground ball to the right side. Like every time, Hey, two outs, left-handed hitter, average runner at first base. Hey, heads up on delay. Like, and I'm standing, standing up, throwing the ball back. Like if we can teach the game through our catchers, it it seems to clean up the game on the field for, for all of us. And then, you know, you get a catcher who's performed and being, you know, a a little more confident back there. All of a sudden he's able to help coach your pitchers and staff, but that comes in time. And that comes with, Mm -hmm. you know, some, some stuff that they've been able to accomplish through, through their career that allows for that trust to be had through the staff. So that that's all earned. Um, I think somehow we get there, you know, I've got a catcher's plus minus chart that we use every inner squad and, One of the categories is high energy, good tempo, plus communication. And that's a plus every inning. Like, did you bring it that inning? You know, when that guy executed that 0-2 glove side fastball, like, were you talking with your glove? Did he know it was a good pitch? Like, does he feel good about it and and his ability to execute it over and over and over again? Like, did you bring that? You know, and I've got the catchers grade each other in that, which is good. You know, I love that. That's how they learn to chart. Like we got four dudes, like two of them are catching, two of them are charting. Um, So like, if they don't give their buddy a point, like, well, maybe you got to do better, you know? <laughs> and, uh, That's great. Story, we had a freshman who who's full of energy, full of life. Um, And this is the first time in baseball I've ever heard this. We get to our first inter- inter-squad game. We've got a runner on third base and I've been hammering the communication thing home. Right. So like, He's talking, and here we go. And he's like, "Hey, man, me and you on a pass ball to the pitcher." <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, like not, We don't need that one." Like,
0: uh, a little doomsday know. prep right there, so right? I like
4: it. <laughs> Cover home. That's great. <laughs> so, no, there there can be too much for sure. You know, if you start hammering it too much, they, all of a sudden they're talking about stuff that that you don't want them talking about, but but i think i think it happens organically with the right with the right makeup and the right yeah. you know m- maturity and presence back there over time they get comfortable in their performance and they're able to come out of their shell and and do the things you want them to do back there
0: yeah really oh that's great what a great story tyler go ahead wrap us up on this one
3: man a lot of really good points um i think one of the one of the most important things is understanding the what whether you have three catchers whether you have a, th- a group of three a group of five, but understanding each one of those guys' personalities. Um, and I also think just like teaching you know, right? You know, you get a lot of guys at school, school junior college, or transfers, they don't know what they don't know. Um, so if they don't know how to lead, I think it's on, on, on us to teach them that. Whether it's just the catchers out lots and they're practicing communication, or you're meeting. One on one, and you're saying you're breaking down film sessions, and you're going through through your verbals. You're teaching them how to look ahead into the game and forcing those conversations, uh, making sure your catchers and your pitchers are t- talking after. Uh, uh, one of the things we do that I think is really neat is, is after every bullpen, our p- pitching coach, our catcher break right down the bullpen. Um, coach O makes sure he's he's with every pitcher and then the catchers come up to shake it down for about five minutes. You know, they're talking, they're listening to the catchers. And then also making sure the catchers are catching. You know, we, we kind of keep track of who's catching who. And it forces different conversations. Zone. It forces different pitchers to interact with different catchers, especially early in the year. Maybe those first couple of bullpens and guys are learning each other. They're learning their pitch types personality so i think i think all of that's important but i think at the end of the day teaching them is probably probably the most part
0: yep that's right it's hard for them to be vocal if they don't know what to say and I, I agree with that so oh man boys this we went a little over the hour i couldn't resist it was the conversation was too good for me to cut it short um, that was great. Gosh, so much, so much, like I wanted to talk about, you know, when do you, when do you know you have a catcher that can call his own game? I mean, gosh, there's so many places we can go, but this is the perfect time to wrap it. You guys, th- this was great. Gosh, just love this conversation. And man, that was, that was almost 70 minutes that blew by. So, um, that is it. We're, we're done with our Sunday night conversations for this fall. Um, and I'm certain that we will try to do something along these lines, uh, next because this has been a blast. Um, uh, we will see everyone in Nashville at the convention. Um, want to encourage everyone to check out the website. I want to say a final thank you to our buddies at netting pros. These guys are awesome. We're so appreciative of their support, uh, of this, this series, this podcast series. So that is it. Everyone have great holidays. Happy holidays. We'll see you in Nashville at the convention. We'll see you in January. Um, and the season will be here before we know it. So that's it. Happy holidays, everyone. Have a good one.